1: We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey this vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all
0: we need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it the thing
2: that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going oh i'm not so sure
1: hello you're listening to bloomberg westminster your daily guide to british politics i'm roger hearing
2: Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Now, it is a year to the day since Boris Johnson ordered England's first lockdown and warned of the hardships ahead.
1: The time has now come for us all to do more. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home.
2: So stay at home. Since that moment, more than 126,000 people have died after contracting the virus and the economy has faced its worst recession in 300 years.
1: Yet jobs figures that came out this morning showed that the British unemployment rose less than expected in January as firms started ramping up hiring amid the vaccine rollout. That said, jobless claims did rise. And if you ask James Reed, who's chair of the recruitment firm Reed, the headline figure doesn't really show the full employment picture. There are currently around five million people in the UK furloughed and, and they're either not working at all or just working part time. And that's a very large number. And if you add that to the 1.7 million who are registered as unemployed, that's more than 20% of the workforce that is not fully active at the moment. So the outlook is, to say the least, uncertain, particularly as a third wave across Europe threatens progress here in the UK.
2: So a human disaster, an economic disaster. Joining us now is Graham Stringer, Labour MP for Blackley and Broughton. Graham, thank you so much for being with us. We're taking today really to pause, to reflect on the last 12 months. In your view, what did the government get right and what did they get wrong over the last year?
3: Well, they got one very big thing right. I think they did extremely well in helping to fund and develop uh, a vaccine. And they did even better in purchasing uh, vaccines, I think, from five different sources. They put a lot of money up front, took risks, so that the, uh, the companies producing the vaccine could take risks. And then they've been very good at getting it into people's arms. So I think sort of 10 out of 10, uh, to the government for vaccination. On the rest of uh, the response to, mm. to this epidemic, they've done very poorly indeed. The test and trace system was incredibly expensive. £35 billion have gone into the budget. And according to the audit, uh, people, it's, for a lot of the time, it only had marginal effect, if any effect uh, at all. They've done that. Uh, badly centralising uh, the public health response has been a mistake. They've sidelined and uh, left unfunded local public uh, health teams and there has been uh, an arbitrary uh, decisions when it's uh, come to, to lockdowns and increasing uh, lockdowns. So one very good thing and a lot of very poor
1: things. Well, one of the one of the things that people are focusing on this week, of course, because there's a vote uh, in, in Parliament, you'll be voting, I guess, um, is extending the restrictions. And a lot of people say it's absolutely extraordinary, the kind of restrictions which the British people have accepted. I mean, you can be fined £5,000 possibly for trying to go on a foreign holiday soon. Uh, a year ago, we wouldn't have dreamt such things were possible. Is it right to continue the restrictions at the level they are at the moment? I will vote against it
3: i think the legislation itself is deeply flawed uh, and the government have abused uh, how they they've uh, implemented uh, that uh, legislation we've got more than half of adults vaccinated uh, in in this country we've got about 98 99% of the groups who have died of COVID, uh, vaccinated, and that figure will obviously only go up marginally. Uh, So the threat of death is very low uh, indeed. So I think there is very little excuse uh, for continuing uh, the legislation. I will vote Mm -hmm. against it. But on the 21st of June, the government are saying uh, that they're scheduled uh, to... all restrictions off. In that case, what is the reason for carrying on with this very uh, dictatorial uh, legislation?
2: Well, I suppose um, because uh, of the danger of, of the virus kind of rearing its head again as it is currently in Europe. So the risk of variants, also the R rate increased last week. now at 0.9. I mean, that's kind of dangerously close to, to one, um, which would mean that it would be spreading very quickly. Uh, so there is a significant danger from variants in particular.
3: We're not locked up uh, because of uh, the RA were locked up because for two reasons, the, the government stated. One, because our hospitals might get overwhelmed uh, by very sick people. And the second reason uh, was to stop people dying. The vaccine, if the vaccination programme is effective, which it appears to be, uh, then both of those reasons uh, no longer eg- exist. And if there is a variant that is uh, much more dangerous than anything we've seen so far, and that doesn't appear to be the case uh, with the variants from Brazil and Kent in this country, then they can look at it again and ask permission uh, for the, the the authority to take very severe decisions again. But to keep... Um, this this legislation on the stocks so that they can carry on telling people what to do in the clip you paid of the prime minister
2: Hmm.
0: he
3: and other ministers have used the language we instruct you there is not nothing in uh, the british constitution in the legislation that allows any minister to instruct anybody in this country Parliament passes laws and the police enforce it and the courts adjudicate it on it. It has gone to their heads. Uh, They have taken dictatorial powers and they've taken dictatorial decisions.
1: All right. Well, a lot of what you're saying will depends on the continuing efficient rollout of the vaccines, of course. And that seems to be slightly under question because of what's going on with uh, vaccines exports. As you know, there's a dispute between Brussels and London at the moment. AstraZeneca company is, seems to be at the heart of it. Suggestions now, perhaps that there could be uh, perhaps a sharing of what comes out of the AstraZeneca fax- factory in the Netherlands. Is this the right way forward? I mean, compromise really at this point?
3: Commercial contracts have been signed and I think those have to be uh, followed. I find the French and German governments and the uh, European Commission's position um, unfathomable, uh, really. They have been saying loudly that the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine uh, doesn't work and that people shouldn't take it. So there's a very low take-up in those countries. And then they're saying, but we want to keep it we won't export it. It's an extraordinary uh, position for them to be in. I think the the UK government should just say we've got commercial contracts. The European Commission weren't prepared to put the money up front to get the contracts, which basically took the financial risks for the government, not the pharmaceutical uh, companies. And I think we just have to uh, stay with that. This uh-huh. country like european countries is making large donations mm. uh, to uh, vaccines to developing countries so it's not that we're keeping it all to ourselves
2: is that something that keir starmer would uh, agree the leader of your party the unite chief len McCluskey, has warned that he thinks that keir starmer is quote turning labor into the party of the establishment is he
3: uh keir starmer wouldn't agree with me i think For understandable reasons, Keir Starmer has been uh, very cautious. He's he's still uh, only been leader for just a a year or so. Um, And I think he's been too cautious, but I understand uh, why. There is a a really fundamental uh, problem for the Labour Party, my party, which is that for the last two, if not three elections, Labour voter has been more affluent uh, than the Conservative voter. That is a very strange position for a party of the left uh, to be in. And I think Keir Starmer is trying to square uh, that circle that in London, affluent middle class people are voting Labour and poor people in the north of England and the Midlands are not. Yeah. Uh, voting Labour, and, and uh, he's not solved that, uh, that conundrum yet.
1: Well, on, on that point, on that very point, you've got, of course, the Hartlepool by-election coming up. It will be very, very interesting. What chance do you think you have of uh, continuing to hold that seat?
3: By-elections are a risky affair at any time, even with uh, governments and oppositions that have clear leads. They're notoriously uh, risky. Voters Seems to think they've got a, a free hit and they often move away from their regular voting patterns. We have chosen a candidate uh, that's even more risky. Uh, he, he's a, a member of parliament for the same region who lost his seat. And in an area that voted 70% to leave the European Union, he's a strong supporter of the European Union. That is a serious uh, uh, difficulty for, for the Labour Party. I, I, I think We we could have chosen a a candidate more in tune with the local area. I think think it's good in by-elections to choose horses for
1: courses. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Uh, Travel. Well, it's not great for those hoping for a summer holiday abroad. A £5,000 fine for anyone in England trying to travel abroad without good reason is due to come into force next week as part of new virus laws. Foreign holidays currently not allowed under the stay-at-home rule, which actually ends on Monday. But then the ban on leaving the UK will become a specific law
2: under the current plan for easing restrictions. Of course, the earliest date that people in England could go abroad uh, would be the 17th of May. However, a resurgence of cases in Europe has cast doubt on the resumption of any foreign travel. The Health Minister uh, Matt Hancock said the restrictions on travelling abroad are necessary to guard against another wave and potential new variants.
1: Meanwhile, the vaccine spat continues, perhaps showing a little bit of light though. This comes as the UK and the EU are edging closer to a diplomatic solution. Uh, it's They want to avoid an escalation over the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, could see exports to the UK blocked from Astra's plant in the Netherlands, but Bloomberg sources are telling us the new idea seems to be to share the factory's output.
2: And what about uh, politics at home in Scotland? First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is expected to survive a vote of no confidence at Holyrood today. This after an independent inquiry found that she had not breached the ministerial code. It was in relation, of course, to her handling of the harassment complaints against the former First Minister, Alex Salmond. Sturgeon believes she did the right thing. Some people being confronted with a similar situation might have made different judgments to the one ones that I made but I believe I acted appropriately in a difficult situation and I'm pleased that I have the independent verification of that
1: another report by a committee of MSPs has said the Scottish Government's handling of harassment complaints against Alex Salmon was seriously flawed. The committee found it hard to believe Nicola Sturgeon wasn't aware of concerns about Salmon's alleged behaviour before November 2017. The MSPs added the First Minister had misled their inquiry in her evidence. So those are some stories around today. But let's talk about where we are now. It's a year of the lockdown lockdowns and other restrictions really here in the UK is it possible then to quantify the costs and benefits of what we've done is it possible to say what would have happened to the economy and society if we'd done nothing well one person who may have some answers to that is our next guest joining us now is Katharina Hauck who is reader in health economics and deputy director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Institute for Disease and Emergency Analytics at Imperial College here in London Thanks for being with us, Dr. Hauk. Let me ask you then, first of all, is it possible to quantify the economic cost of this year of lockdowns and other restrictions?
0: Hi, Roger. Yeah, thanks for... I mean, this is an incredibly difficult question, obviously. And um, people, various uh, groups have tried to estimate um, the costs of the lockdown. And we here at Imperial have done that as well. Um, So roughly the estimates vary for a severe lockdown as we had in march 2020 between 37 billion for the uk that was our estimate and some others estimate that higher up to 46 billion now of course there are huge caveats around this figure and three points really are important first we have to ask what is really the counterfactual so in order to calculate the cost of the lockdown or more broadly, non-pharmaceutical interventions, we need to ask against what do we compare in our calculation? Do we compare a world against the world without the pandemic? Um, and so we would be comparing the reduction against the pre-pandemic production, or is it a world with a pandemic, but without any MPIs or non-pharmaceutical interventions? That would be an unmitigated pandemic. So any calculation is really very hypothetical. Um, and because we cannot disentangle the effects of the pandemic from the effects of the mitigation measures. Then, of Mm. course, we are only looking at economic costs. We know social costs and long-term costs of missed education are high, mental health impacts, and so forth. And the third, I think, caveat to these estimates are that that they are short-term. They're very short-term estimates, and the Bank of England thinks that we will consider uh, that, that, that we will bounce back afterwards, at least to a certain degree. So something, there will be a permanent scarring in the mid-term. So we have to consider all these facts. And mm-hmm. there are speculations whether, whether um, changes in, uh, in the demand for goods and services, whether this will be permanently changed or whether um, this, uh, this will be just a short-term change so yep. i think it's uh, it's very difficult to uh, actually put a monetary value on it
2: yeah no incredibly complex um, uh, you've explained it so um, interestingly but look how then does this compare with the cost of let's say the test and trace system and the vaccine rollout because those are sort of quite quantifiable in terms of how much the government has had to put into those uh, to those issues
0: Yes. So, I mean, we have a pretty clear idea of what these two interventions cost. Um, But, of course, um, we find it much harder to quantify the benefits of these interventions. Um, Now, uh, of course, the costly intervention is worthwhile to do if the benefits are very high. Um, So the benefits in our, our case would be averted deaths, averted hospitalizations, and then averted costly lockdowns. Now, it's very difficult to know where test and trace falls in that spectrum. There is some doubt about um, about the benefits, about the total benefits of this intervention. So first, I think the costs are roughly, I looked that up um, from the start of the pandemic until April this year, about 20 billion. Mm. So a naive observer would say that just preventing one month of lockdown, which we estimate, at, as I said before, up to... Up to uh, forty uh, or forty-six or forty-nine billion, if they prevent just one month of lockdown, now that would be still a pretty good investment, actually a cost-saving uh, investment. But of course, the experience has shown us that the test-and-trace did not prevent the lengthy winter lockdown that we are hopefully seeing the tail end now. And um, estimates from modeling say that actually it's not that efficacious. Um, in reducing transmission completely. So even optimistic scenarios suggest it might prevent 20 to 30 percent of transmission only. Now, with respect to the vaccination program, um, these costs are estimated at 11.7 billion at the moment for a one-year vaccination program, so one round of the population um, vaccinated. Now, um, of course, the, the beauty of a vaccination program is that um that once we achieve a high coverage and that's a big if, but once we achieve that we can kind of take the foot of the pedal, meaning relax other NPIs. Whereas with test and trace and lockdowns, we always have to keep the foot on the pedal, right? So while these interventions are implemented they reduce transmission, but right after when they are lifted interventions uh, these interventions are lifted, then infections go right up again. So we're, we would yeah. be just postponing, whereas with a vaccine, of course, we have the benefit of immunity, with caveats.
1: Indeed. Uh, Doctor, one thing that interests me, you mentioned these NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. If we take the lockdown as part of that, uh, if these have been, they were right across the board, it was a general thing, stay at home, nobody move. If these restrictions had been put in place in a more targeted way, would they have been more effective and perhaps less costly?
0: Yes. So, I mean, as we saw last summer the, or autumn, the um, government trying to target them on a geographical basis and um, with the tier system. Um, and, but that's, of course, difficult if you have a population that spreads and moves between tiers and spreads infections as well, as we saw the Kent variant or so-called Kent variant spread to other regions Uh, quickly despite um, despite these period lockdowns so we have done some research where we actually thought about what if we um, strategically target economic sectors for lockdown and we would be targeting those sectors that are high risk for transmission contribution and at the same time contribute relatively little to GDP and we keep the high value and low contact or low transmission sectors open. Mm. And our research has shown that this would increase GDP by about 28 percent compared to a blanket lockdown. So, um, I mean, hopefully um, we are not in a position to implement stringent lockdowns ever again. But I think there are ways of making this approach uh, work better at That's the same number of deaths distributed resulting in a higher GDP
2: Okay. Um, just briefly, as we come to the end of the program, the cost of all of this we know has been felt so unequally across society. How have you looked at that issue?
0: So, I mean, we have seen that, um, that the pandemic increased inequality on a household level. Um, 80%, I think, of households managed to increase their savings quite significantly um, um, in the country. But for 20%, unfortunately, um, the economic downturn meant they really had to dig into their savings. Um, and um, so this is likely to increase inequality that hopefully uh, hopefully, will be possible to mitigate in years to come. Um, now, with respect to economic sectors, I think there is evidence that um, even in sectors that are hard hit, such as the services industry, there are some sectors... Um, which, um, which uh, saw a much greater contraction in production than other sectors. Um, and there's interesting data on that on the ONS website. Yeah.
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.